All right, good morning. That's been an adventure this morning, hasn't it? It's fun. Uh, I do, uh, I know, I just want to thank our, our musicians and our sound team, tech team, and, and they do a lot of work that you never know about and how much work they put into those things, and so just thank them for, for the work they put in. Um, this morning, we are uh, journeying through the book of Hebrews and uh, continuing to, to uh, do our study there. If you're new with us, we just kind of journey through a book, and our book we have chosen uh, for the about nine months is going through the book of Hebrews. And so today we're Hebrews 5. We've made it all the way to chapter 5 now, verses 1 through 10. Uh, let me pray for us, and, uh, and we'll get started. Father, thank you, for, thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you that we can, we can hear it, we can read it, we can think about it. We can reflect on it. We can respond to it. Thank you for the power of conviction that comes through your spirit, through your word. Thank you for the power of hope that comes through your spirit, uh, through your word. We pray, God, this morning that you would open up our eyes to see Jesus. And that, God, we would be filled uh, with your spirit in a way we can walk um, out of here today uh, into this world, walking with you, showing people the love of Christ through us. And that, God, you would use us in the lives of so many. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, our world is broken, if you haven't noticed that or not. It seems like every single day uh, there is a news story, a news report of some tragedy has happened, whether that be here in Indiana, or that be in the United States, or around the world. Uh, I, I do my, my sermons, I prepare them, manuscript them out, write them out um, about two weeks, week and a half ahead of time. Um, and I had written this already before even this week. Uh, when we had the tragedy in Thousand Oaks, California happened as well. It just seems like not even a week goes by and there's some new tragedy that seems to be happening. And uh, it's easy to lose heart. It's easy to grow discouraged by our world and the state that it's in. It's easy to be despairing. And if we put our hope uh, in the stock market, if we put our hope in a president, we put our hope in a politician, in any policy, procedure, or person, my friends, we will despair. We will despair. Um, that's why every single Sunday, it is my job to stand before you and to point you to the only person whom you can find hope in, and that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Right? That, is, that is my sole responsibility. Um, if your work causes you to transfer somewhere, if the health, health of a loved one causes you to have to move to take care of them, if you go off to college, or for whatever reason you're not here at Parkside Bible Church, I want it to be drilled into your head that wherever you go, whatever church you walk into, that you look up there and you say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And if they don't do it, and if I don't do it, I fail you. And you can feel free, if I get up here and give you five points about something else, and I give commentary on political culture, or if I give you some good moral lessons, and I never get to Jesus, feel free to pick at this place, stand up, and walk out the back. Because that is why we're here. And that is the responsibility of someone who's going to preach God's word to you is to exalt the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because, my friends, that's where hope is found. Right? That's where hope is found. And so, and we know that 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 is really what all of the Bible is about. Jesus has said this himself, right? John 5, 39, he said, you search the scriptures Because you think that in them you have eternal life. In other words, you think that in doing them and obeying what it says and maybe implementing its moral stories, you'll find life. And Jesus said, but it's these that bear witness about me. He's very clearly stating right there that this whole Bible, this whole thing, it all points to me. It's all here to point to me. And so this means every single Sunday we have to go to work. 
Every single Sunday, you have to come be prepared to work, okay? I know you're like, it's Sunday, it's a day off. All right, but you're working with your mind today, okay? We dig. Hebrews is a hard book. Maybe you've noticed that, right? Even the reading today, you're like, man, I don't know who this Melchizedek guy is, right? So there's work to be done, all right? We have to dig in. We have to work. And we need to dig. We need to explore. We need to reflect on the Scriptures so that we can see Jesus, so that we can find hope and power in Him. And many times, and it can be helpful um, to jump to maybe contemporary analogies of Jesus, contemporary stories. I, I like to do this. I love, you know this, I love Lewis, but I love the Chronicles of Narnia series. I love the images that we can pull from that story about the person work of Christ. It's great. I, I love Tolkien's works and things like that. We can pull stories and analogies from those kind of things. But if we're really going to see Jesus, we got to do work in the Old Testament, which is what Hebrews forces us to do, right? That's what I love about Hebrews. It forces us to go back and to study God's history, and to take what he has written and see Jesus in those sections. Our modern history is simply too limited to interpret Jesus. Our culture, our society, our era and time are way too simple and local to give the needed categories for grasping who Jesus is and what he came to do. So we have to dig into God's history, right? And, so, and this is exactly what Hebrews causes us to do. And in God's history in the Old Testament, we find critical background for going deep to knowing who Jesus is. And so we have to do the work. And I promise you, if you do the work and you think with me, you will get a great picture of who Jesus is. And we'll find hope and courage and boldness to move out of this place and make his name known. And really, that's what the book of Hebrews, that's what the writer has been doing all along. Right? The first four chapters of this book, he's been trying to give us hope and courage Right? Courage to take risks for Jesus by showing just how great he is, how much greater he is than anything else in the world. And he's been telling us all along, like if, if only you can comprehend who Jesus is, if only you can see what he has done, this will help you persevere in your faith when difficult times come. If we just get Jesus straight, is what he's saying, everything else will come into focus and we'll hold fast till the end. And so today, he's going to take an image of the Old Testament you may or may not be familiar with, is this guy called the high priest. And I promise you, it's very applicable to our lives. But we have to do some work to understand who he was so that we can then understand who Jesus is, right? That's why we have to do that work. And so the Old Testament had a lot to say about this high priest, he, was, he represented God to man and man to God, but he also wore a very interesting outfit. And I've got an image. It's not like it's a photograph of the time, just so you know. They didn't have photographs back then. But this is a drawing of what it would have looked like based on the description uh, in the Old Testament. Exodus 28 is a great spot to go to to kind of get some of the ideas of what the high priest was supposed to wear. Because everything was symbolic in what he wore. So he wore... The first piece, he wore a white linen tunic as kind of the, the foundation of his garments. Over that was placed a robe of blue, as you can see in the picture. Attached to the robe's hem at the very bottom, which you probably can't see too closely here, there is uh, interspersed these pomegranates woven intermittently between golden bells uh, that kind of rang every time he moved. You could hear these bells ringing. Um, he wore a, a multicolored sash, as you can see there as well. Next, he had this apron like ephod. You kind of see that. He's like an ancient grill master. You can see in the picture there. Maybe that's what they wore to flip their burgers in. I don't know, but it looks like an apron, right? It's like a grilling apron. We'll call it that. And that was woven. You can see that on the shoulders. He had shoulder pieces that wore. He had two large onyx stones 
uh, that were set in gold. And those were important because the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were engraved on stones, six on the left, you know, six on the right, or on his shoulders. He was bearing their burdens was the symbolism there, right? He had their names on his shoulders. He was carrying the load. And then on the front of that is this gold, a gold chain connected to this square. You can see that on his chest there was a nine-inch square tapestry of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet threads. There were four rows of three stones, 12 stones, each engraved again with each of the names of the the tribes of Israel. All 12, again, they were on the the priest's chest, right? They were next to his heart. He was carrying them um, in, in his heart, as it were. And then on his head, he had a turban. And it had written on there, holy to the Lord across the top. Okay, that, all that stuff is important because we're going to come back to that by the end. We're going to see how Jesus has, has assumed, assumed those, those very things. So everyone around knew this guy. All right? He was very popular. Everyone knew who the high priest was, whatever generation they were living in. If there were paparazzi at the time, right, they would have been clamoring for pictures. And everyone was their photograph with the high priest because he was the most popular guy at the time. He had the most important job in all of Israel because he was the man whom God appointed who was to know and relate to the people of Israel and then represent them to God once a year on a special day. Maybe you know what this day is. It's called Yom Kippur or also known as the Day of Atonement. That was his big day. Okay? And then that day, he walked into the Holy of Holies inside the very inner part of the temple where God's, God's presence was, and he was to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Big deal, right? This guy was a very big deal. He was bigger, he was more popular and bigger deal than the Trumps, right? Than the Obamas or Clintons or Bushes, right? He was even a bigger deal than Fox News. I know it's hard to believe. But he was. I know my context, right? I know Fox News is a big deal, right? He was bigger news. He was bigger news than Fox News. But we're going to find out today is that Jesus fulfilled what the high priest could only dream of fulfilling. Jesus was appointed by the Father. He became a man. Uh, He both relates to the people and offers a sacrifice. We'll find out in Hebrews. We'll go on to tell us this. Uh, not Not of animals, right, but of himself. And so we're going to start today, we're going to look at the high priest first, okay? Just stick with me through this, because it's important. We're going to look at who he was, and then we're going to look at how Jesus fulfilled every piece of what he is. So let's look at the, the human high priest in the first four verses here. The human high priest. First of all, the, the high priest must be appointed. Look down at verse 4, we'll start there. It says, no one takes this honor for himself, the only one called by God, just as Aaron was. And this word here for takes this honor, take is the word literally to seize violently. It's a very strong word. Um, it's the one to seize it for himself. It, uh, he must be divinely selected. He can't go out and grab this title for himself. It's important to understand that when this was being written, this is not how the high priest actually, he wasn't divinely selected. Um, he was actually more based on popular vote at the time. Other times he won his position by outbidding their, his competitors. Other times he did it through a conniving or scheming or intimidation. Uh, the role at this time, the Bible was being, the Hebrews is being written, uh, that role was pretty corrupt. If you go read the Gospels, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, if you're familiar with the last days of Jesus, the high priest, you know, and the, and the scheming to get him killed, you kind of understand, yeah, that, that role wasn't anything like it was supposed to be by that time in history. So you say, how were, how were they divinely selected? How did that happen? And it tells us here, because it's in, from Exodus 28, it says by, by Aaron here in our, in our text, God called Aaron and his line of subsequent firstborn sons to be the high priest. It was very easy. The firstborn son of that line was supposed to be the high priest for that generation. And we do have examples 
in the Old Testament of times where guys tried to seize violently this role. Maybe you, maybe you can think of a couple of them. Uh, it didn't go well for them, right? Saul was one of them, and Uzziah was the other one. Saul tried to seize the role of priest and, and do what the priest was doing, and, uh, and that, he lost his kingship over that. Uzziah tried to do it, ran to the temple, and got struck with leprosy and died, right? So it, there's examples where guys tried to seize it violently. They had to be appointed by God himself. Number two, they must be human. Verse 1 tells us every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So you can hear the emphasis, right? The repetition of men uh, in this one verse. The high priest is taken out of mankind to act on behalf of mankind and things pertaining to God. And the key idea here is representation. Representation. The high priest had to be human in order to represent other humans, right? He had to represent them. He had to stand on their behalf before God. Now, that may seem obvious to you. It's like, well, of course the high priest had to be human. What was he supposed to be? You have to understand that so far in this letter, the writers talked a lot about, about a certain uh, being, right? He's talked a lot about angels. And it's very easy to assume that angels could do a lot better job than, than humans could. Maybe God would appoint an angel to be that. But God didn't choose angels to be priests. Angels didn't have the same nature as human beings, they cannot understand people. They do not have open communication with people. Only a human can be subject to the temptations of humans, which you'll get to in a minute. Only a human could experience suffering uh, and thereby be able to minister to humans in an understanding and merciful way, as we saw last week at the end of chapter 4. Only a human could rightly uh, minister on behalf of human beings. This is why he must be human. Number three, he must also relate Verse 2 says, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Okay? The high priest wasn't a, um, a, a, this high priest wasn't a writer in an ivory tower, right? disconnected from the people. He wasn't a monk in a cave in the Himalayas. Right? He, was, he was among the people on a daily basis, and he dealt gently with them. And literally the phrase at the end is a great phrase. He wore their weakness. He wore their weaknesses. That's what that word means when it says beset with weakness. It literally means he wore their weakness. Now, the, the first part, the deal gently is a fascinating word. Deal gently, in about every version that you may have of English, is translated differently because it's a very hard word to translate into English. Now, we don't do a lot of language study, uh, but it is important at times that I bring up certain words for you because they're so unique in how they were written that English just doesn't do them justice. And so the word that was used here, and I'll put it up on the screen, is the word metriopathia, okay? Just I told you, hang with me now. I told you, you got to do some work. I trust it'll be, it'll be worth it at the end. Metriopathia. And you may see a little bit of, of a word there of apathy. You can see a little bit inside of that word. It's a, it's a word that basically means to be somewhere on the spectrum between apathy on one side and anger on the other. It's neither one of those. It's somewhere in the middle of those two. People have said the, the product of this is maybe patience. In other words, he was neither indifferent to people, nor was he harsh with people. It is a powerful sympathy that helps shepherd broken people by listening to them and pointing them to God. It's the quality of every pastor. It's the quality of every parent. It's the quality of every counselor, teacher. You must have this to be able to work with people. You must have this metriopathia. And here's why the high priest, or the priest, the high priest, the pastors, parents, counselors, teachers must have this quality. They must have this, this kind of character quality. If they don't, 
two things, there will be two cliffs you can fall off, two, two uh, ditches you can run off into, right? One is you can become too sympathetic, and the other one is you can become too apathetic. One will be engulfed with the problems of people in a way that they, they're too grief-stricken to help, right? They're just, they're just consumed with it, and they can't do anything to help. And the other ditch is that they will, they will not be able to recognize um, a problem that's even happening, right? They just kind of just roll on by and never even see the brokenness and the hurt that is occurring. But the high priest had this metriopathia. He had that middle of the road. He had both of those abilities. An ability to fully identify with a person having a problem without losing perspective and rushing to judgment. He was strong enough to experience the extremes of human emotion and temptation and had the ability to hold it all together. He was part of the life of people, part of the humanity of suffering. He literally, again, wore their weaknesses, yet he dealt gently with them. Pretty clear application here, men, husbands, dads. You need metriopathia, right? You need to see yourself in a role like similar to a high priest within your family. You have to learn to identify with your wife and kids and see what they're going through, but also be strong enough to help with what they are going through. See the ditches you can fall into, right? You can become too sympathetic, and you become drowning in everyone's struggles, and you maybe need to get your feet on solid ground, and you need to step up, and maybe you just need to lead your family because you just have fallen into the ditch on that one side. Others of you may just be too apathetic to what is going on in your spouse or kid's lives, right? And you need to step it up, and you need to get involved. You need to get out of the ditch, and you need to step up, and you need to get involved and see, open your eyes with what is going on. If if your wife or your kids were asked today, if they feel that you know what they are going through, if they were asked that question, do they, if they asked, do you listen to them, that you care, do they sense that, what would they say? Maybe it's a good question to ask them. It's a very humbling question to ask them. Not what you think they should say. What do they feel like coming from you? Do you wear the weaknesses of your family and those around you? Do you deal gently with them? That's what the role of the high priest was supposed to be. That's the kind of man he was supposed to be. Number four, lastly, he also must offer. Okay? Verse 3 says he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So this was specifically taking place on the Day of Atonement. Later on in Hebrews, we're going to dig into that one day, and we're going to look at that in detail But while he was decked out in his garb, that you saw earlier on in that picture, he would have to go out of his home. He would first first thing he had to do on that day is he'd have to kill a bull. He'd kill a bull for for his own personal sins and the sins of his family. This is all in a way of purifying himself to be able to enter into the Holy of Holies. And so what he would do, he would lay his hands on the head of the bull. They would kill the bull. It would be a sacrifice animal on behalf of his sins and the sins of his family. And then they would would walk over and there'd be two goats. And he would have two goats and he would lay his hand on the one symbolizing redemption, they would have that goat would be killed on behalf of the people. And then he would go over to the other goat, and they would set that goat free, right? Talking about expiation, kind of the taking away of sin. The goat would run away, and it was a a picture of the sin being taken away. So one would die, redemption. One would run away, would symbolize expiation, taking away the sin and removing it and offering forgiveness. 
Once all that was done, this guy would then walk into the holy place and into the holy of holies, and he would take blood of the sacrifice, and he would, he would sprinkle some on the mercy seat. He would sprinkle some on the, the ground uh, before the mercy seat seven different times. It was a very bloody job. If you ever read the Old Testament, it's very bloody, okay? And it was also a very important job. Again, what he was doing was just a picture uh, of what ultimately Jesus came to do. So let's look at that. Number two, the divine high priest the divine high priest. We're going to look exactly how he fulfilled all of these things. Number one, Jesus was appointed. Jesus was appointed. Look at verse 5. Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest. Remember, he didn't seize it violently, but was appointed by him who said, you're my son, today I've begotten you, and also you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the writer tells us that Jesus didn't claim the title for himself. As a matter of fact, he couldn't claim the title for himself according to Jewish law, because he wasn't from the line of Aaron and Levi. He wasn't of the priestly line. Remember, he was of the kingly line. He's of the line of Judah, right? It was where he came from. He was the kingly line. So how, how did he become a priest then? How is that possible? Well, it says here, he was declared and called so by the father, just as Aaron was verbally told that he was going to be the line of the priest as well. This is what the writer's arguing, right? That's why, why he pulls up these two different verses, he, in many ways, Jesus blew the categories out of the water. No one understood anybody to be somehow to be a king and at the same time the priest at the same time. Because we knew in the Old Testament, whenever that tried to happen, whenever the king tried to be priest, remember Uzziah? You know, things didn't go well. There was not a combination like that except for one example. He'll get to in chapter 7. This guy, we'll call him Melchi for short, okay? Melchizedek, okay? It was, this guy was unique, um, and so the writer quotes from two, two places. Verse 5, he quotes from Psalm 2. We've already looked at Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is better understood as the understanding of Jesus' exaltation as king. That's what that whole psalm is about. And then he quotes in verse 6 from Psalm 110, where he gets Melchizedek from. He's also in Genesis 14. Um, and he's a high priest. So Jesus is both of those declared in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Okay, So he's qualified to be both king and high priest. Number 2, Jesus was also human. Okay, verse 7 begins this way, in the days of his flesh. God took on human flesh. God became it. Just, just think about that for a moment. God, the creator, took on, wrote himself in, as Lewis said, wrote himself into the drama of redemption, right? He became a character, as it were, in the story, right? The author jumped into the story. The creator jumped into our lives, This is what Christmas is all about, right? This is what hope is found, God becoming man. And what this is going to say, and this is a startling passage, and you're going to have to, it's going to be a little somber here because we're going to walk through these words, and it is very strong. And what it's going to tell us is that Jesus didn't just enter human condition. The idea is he intensely entered human condition, intensely entered it. He broke into our suffering, not just become human, but he suffered, and he wasn't faking it either. Okay, that's a, the writer of Hebrews wants to make that point very clear. He wasn't faking his humanity. He wasn't a veiled, you know, deity. And he's like, ah, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 100% God, but yeah, I'm 100% man, but not really. No, he was 100% man, right, while being 100% God. He, we, he wept with our weeping, right? He rejoiced with our rejoicing. Look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane here. Mark 14, says, He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be, you know, the words are important, greatly distressed and troubled. I love one translator put it this way, that, that greatly distressed and trouble can be translated terrified human surprise. He faced terrified human surprise. 
when he got into the house, when he got into the garden of Gethsemane. This is the response, the idea of the language, this is the response someone has to personal tragedy. This is the response that a parent would have gotten of, a, of one of their sons or daughters who was a college student in Thousand Oaks who got killed this week. That's the, imagine that emotion, imagine that feeling of what that is like. That's the idea of this language, terrified human shock. Okay, that's what is really going on here. And you say, was this sorrow, this pain, this terrified human shock of Jesus, was it just brief? Was it just in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus faced this great amount of suffering and emotional trauma? Was it only for that hour? No, it wasn't. Here in 5.7 of Hebrews, it says, notice the language, in the days of his flesh. What's that mean? His entire life. His entire life was like this. Can you imagine living your whole life in terrified human shock? I mean, in terms of just feeling the emotion and the pain of humanity. Every day, Jesus was wrestling and praying and crying out and weeping. His entire existence was terrified human shock. That's why Isaiah said he would be called a man of what? Sorrows, present tense. Not one time in his life he became a man of sorrows. His entire life was one of sorrow and sadness. Maybe you today struggle like with depression and you're just sad and you're, you don't know what to do with it and you never feel like it ever goes away. The cloud never lifts. Jesus knows exactly what that is like. His whole life was like that. It was dark and it was rainy as it were. He was a man of sorrows, perpetually weighed down with the suffering and the sorrows of mankind. And it was not brief. It was a lifetime of war. It was a lifetime of war against suffering and sadness and the sin of the human race. Let me just give you some examples. In the New Testament, Matthew 9, 35 to 36, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. You're like, oh, man, he doesn't seem like he was pretty sad there. It sounds like a great time. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's how he saw them. They might have come across that way, but he knew, John 2 says, he knew what was in man. He knew what was in every human being. He knew what they thought of him. He knew their world. He knew their life. And so here he finds, he looks at them, he had compassion for them. That's why Matthew 23, later on, verse 37, he, he goes on top of a hill. He sees Jerusalem as a city as a whole, the whole of population. And he says, the city that kills the prophets, stones, stones those who are sent to it. You're thinking, uh, I hate you, is what you think the response would be. I'm, I'm going to take you out. And look what he says. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? Like, I just wanted to, to gather. You could feel the heartbreak, as it were, of the, of the brokenness and the sin of humanity. Mark 6, verse 34, he went ashore. He saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were like every, every single individual person to him looked like an individual sheep that was just wandering off completely lost without any guidance, any hope, any care. That's how he saw people. Luke 19, 41, when he drew near to the city and saw the city, what did he do? He, he wept. He, he wept over it. Not because he didn't like how the buildings were made or didn't like the environment or whatever. It was the people that represented that city. Every single individual, it broke his heart. John eleven thirty five, shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus what? Wept. 
God cried. God cried. And, and look how the Gospel of John just starts off. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Isn't that fat? Maybe just lose sight of that for a moment, but just think about it. He dwelt among us. He was with us. He didn't commute. You know, maybe you have a commute job, right? You know, you commute from Brownsburg to Indianapolis or whatever, and you're going to work every day. You know what a commute is like. Jesus didn't commute, right, from Jerusalem to heaven every day. You know, it's like, all right, I'm getting out of here. I'm going back up to heaven. I'll be back tomorrow. I mean, he didn't do that, right? I mean, he, he stayed. He lived among us. That's what the word means, dwelt among us. He was not at arm's length, right? He wasn't like Captain America with his shield, you know, like, ah, get out of here, you know, and don't get too close to me. I mean, you see him at some points with little kids around him. He washed feet. His hands he laid on lepers. He, he touched blind eyes. He lived among us. He slept where people slept. He ate where people ate. He walked where people walked. He experienced the joys of attending weddings, of attending feasts and festivals. He knows the joys of those, the joys of eating food and drinking and singing and seeing people be healed and seeing the joy on people's faces and their response. He felt that. He also had things stolen from him. At one point, he says he had no place to lay his head, no place to sleep, was flat broke, held a job, basically, as a young man, as a carpenter that we would say today, you know, probably paid minimum wage for him. He experienced fatigue, hunger, sorrow, anger, pain, suffering. He faced every possible temptation to sin, was unpop- unpopular, unappreciated, and unacknowledged for all that he did for people. He cried over the death of, death of a friend. He cried over the hardness of the human heart. He cried over the people's rejection of God. And he also, again, he knew what everybody thought of him. And what everyone thought of him wasn't very good. Right? Even his own brothers didn't believe in him. They thought he was a few fries short of a happy meal. Right? They just thought he was crazy. He experienced the rejection of man, the abandonment of his best friends. He experienced the betrayal of someone close, the false accusations of his character, the mockery of enemies, the criticism of his love. He experienced the pain in the death of his own stepfather. Many believe that Joseph died somewhere along the lines of him as a teenager because he goes off the scene, never see him again. He experienced the death of a cousin, John the Baptist. He experienced the death of a friend, and Lazarus. He even experienced death itself. That's what I love. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, if I were God and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what you feel like. You're like, what in the, why don't you just wipe everybody out? Jesus does not stand back. This is the love about the Bible. So love about the reality of God. He doesn't stand back and, and from the clouds of heaven, as it were, bark out and say, you know what? You need to try harder. You need to do better. You need to work your way up here. Hey, you got yourself into this mess. You need to work yourself out of it. He doesn't do that. He comes down. He lives among us to rescue us, right? But there's more to this high priest does. Number three, Jesus also related. Now, this gets really good. He related Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, for he was heard because of his reverence. Now here, the writer does take us, I love this about Hebrews, he takes us into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he gives us commentary on what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not what happened necessarily from from an action standpoint, but what happened emotionally, okay? If you've seen Passion of the Christ, you've seen Jesus in in the Garden of Gethsemane, not even close to accurate of actually how Hebrews describes what happened there, okay? 
It helps us feel what Jesus felt. This is how closely related Jesus was to us. He took on our sufferings. And it says here, now the language again is important. He uses the word here, loud cries. The word literally means a strong, vehement uproar. That's what the word means, okay? A strong, vehement uproar. It was a word, the exact same word was used back in Acts to refer to an angry mob that was ready to kill Paul. The sound of an angry mob. Can you hear that? Can you hear the sound of an angry mob wanting to kill somebody? Screaming and yelling. That's the word used to describe what Jesus was going through, what he was feeling, what he was saying, or what the sounds that you heard in the garden was that kind of sound. It's used again, the same word is used in Ephesians 4.31. This is interesting. In Ephesians 4.31, it's, it goes so far as to be a sin. Now, Jesus didn't sin in what he felt or, or sin in what he said, but it is the word translated to clamor. And the best way to translate this maybe today would be like a temper tantrum. I know it sounds crazy, but the language that it has is Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane with a loud screaming. And yet Jesus didn't sin through all of that. It's the idea of shrieking and shouting and screaming. Right? If you have a toddler, you may have heard this before. Okay? But again, Jesus didn't sin in this. But I want you to get that picture. I want you to, next time you have a temper tantrum with your little one, I want you to have a little bit of, 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 of take that a little bit and go like, okay, I know they're doing this out of selfishness and sin. <laughs> but Jesus had that kind of a response. That's the kind of emotion that Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I love the language here even adds an adjective to this, and to the word outcry. He adds the word severe or loud. And so the idea was Jesus was a massive screaming outcry. You think of Garden of Gethsemane and you think of the Passion of the Christ movie, this is a far, far stretch from that, isn't it? And the idea that Jesus wasn't quiet in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was screaming till his throat was raw. You ever screamed till your throat was raw? You ever cried so hard you can barely breathe? That's the image of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane according to the writer of Hebrews. His scream was like a blood-curdling scream. And now it makes you shocked to go like, how in the world do the disciples sleep through all that? Right? I mean, you start to get some perspective here. The writer kind of helps us get, wow, it was, it was not quiet in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then there's another word used here. It's the word tears. That word is used again in Hebrews. It's used in, in Hebrews 12, 17. And it's a reference there to Esau, who was, you know, after selling his birthright to Jacob. Remember that story? He sold his birthright, and remember, he, he realized what he had done, and he just loses it, right? And he begs his father, please, is there any blessing for me? You know this story at all? Okay, he, I mean, he just, he pleads with it. That's the idea of the word of what Esau, he was tears of begging. That's the word used exactly here describing Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, tears in begging. It's a complicated word, but it's a word that's somewhere between the idea of the spectrum of grief and anger, right? Somewhere in the middle of those two. It's used of Jesus in John 11 as he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. So as Jesus was weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, you can almost picture his body shaking with tears, flowing full of grief and yet full of anger at the same time. So as he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, my friends, Jesus wasn't smiling. He was angry. He was weeping. You say, why? Why why was he doing that? Because death is bad. Death is that's a bad thing. Jesus wasn't at, the, at Lazarus. He wasn't thinking to himself, well, um, my man, these people, they're all a mess, you know? I mean, they're all crying. They think this thing's a tragedy. Man, look, no harm done. 
I'm about to raise this guy from the dead, right? This looks like a bad thing, but it's, it's really not. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, it's a good thing. I'm going to show them who I am here. This is great. This is really exciting. I can't wait. That's not the language. That's not what was used. Jesus was weeping at the tomb because the bad thing he was about to work for good was actually a bad thing. Death is not a good thing. And so he's not saying it's okay. He's mad and broken over what sin has done to this world. Jesus hates death. He also hates loneliness, alienation, pain, and suffering. Jesus hates it so much that he's willing to come into this world and experience it himself so that he eventually could destroy it and all of it without destroying us in the process. And so here's Jesus in the garden, weeping, shaking, screaming, broken, and angry, yet not sinning in all of that. He knows firsthand what sin does to humanity. He knows what pain comes from it. You see, Jesus knew he'd have to face death. As a matter of fact, in verse 7 here, it tells us that Jesus was, he wasn't praying to escape death, but to be saved what? The language is important. Through death. Through death. And the Father answered his prayer. He took his son through death and back out the other side. And as a result, defeating sin and death and, and hell and Satan himself for those who would believe. But it was costly, right? You see, how costly was it? The father would have to lose his son. He would have to turn his back on Jesus. Why? Because he became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that he, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. We may not have all the answers in suffering, but one thing is for sure. The Christian God, the only God, unlike the so-called gods of other religions, takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he's willing to get involved with it himself. On the cross, Jesus suffered with us, and he didn't quit, and the Father didn't alleviate it either. Right? He poured it all on him. Look at verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Okay? This means Jesus suffered all the way. This means he drank every last drop of that cup of wrath that you and I deserve, and there's not a drop left. You put your faith in him, he drank every, every drop. And it's the thing, Jesus didn't reach for angelic assistance either, even though he was a son. That's the idea of language. He had these things at his disposal. He could have turned everybody into dirt. He could have reached for angelic assistance to wipe everybody out at that moment on the cross. He could have come down. They asked him to come down, right, in mockery. If you're who you say you are, come down. He didn't do that, although he was a son. That's, the, that's why he says that. And what he's telling us here when it says learned obedience, he wasn't exempted from the common law that learning comes by suffering. Right? We call it learning by trial and error. Well, Jesus learned by trial and no error. Okay? Uh, he learned obedience not by the consequences of disobedience, but by the difficulty that comes with obedience. It's easier to compromise or quit. Jesus never did that. He never threw in the towel. He never raised the white flag. He never surrendered. Think about this, my friends. He stayed in the fight for your salvation. Even though he was beaten to a pulp, even though he was knocked down on the mat, as it were, he stayed in the fight. He got back up again, right? He never quit on you. Even when his back was ripped to shreds and his beard was pulled out, he never quit. Isaiah 50 68 tells us as a commentary about what happened to Jesus. He said, I gave my back to those who, who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. This is amazing commentary. This is like 750 years before Jesus, and yet here we have commentary. 
But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I've not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. That's language that's used in the Gospel of Luke, by the way. The determination of Jesus. And I know that I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. I know I'll be rescued. I know I'll be resurrected. And so this was the price of obedience. Again, it would have been easier to disobey the Father's will. Again, just turn people into dust. But he endured and he suffered till the end. As Peter says, he was reviled, but he did not revile in return but kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He learned to trust the Father with suffering. Jesus learned to trust, trust the Father through suffering. Right? You know, the same struggle you have. Am I going to trust God through this suffering? Jesus learned to trust God through suffering. He didn't move from disobedience to obedience. Right? He moved from untested to tested and proven. That's the idea of he learned obedience. You know what this means? Very, very clear. This is what this means is that there's a common, maybe it's songs and things you sing that are not theologically accurate. <laughs> Jesus was not born ready to die. He was not born ready to die, at least not as this high priest role. His life, his suffering, maybe you wonder that, like, why in the world did he live like 33 years? Why didn't he just like, boom, come down at 33, hop on the cross, die, resurrect, done. <laughs> Finished. <laughs> he had to live, he had to go through it. He had to suffer. His life, his suffering was necessary for him to fully relate, which was necessary to be the high priest that he's been called to be. Do you see how amazing, amazingly applicable this was to the readers in their suffering or the suffering that's going on in your life? This means when we go to God and we say to Jesus, you know, I, you know, I got this problem. I got this loss. This, this pain is breaking my heart. And the response back is, I know it breaks my heart too. I've been there. I know what that feels like. But we also know, it's the beautiful thing about God, is that he's not only 100% man, he's 100% God. We know that he's sinless, therefore he's big enough to hold all of it. And he's also big enough and strong enough because he's sovereign to do something about it. Isn't that amazing? He can feel, he knows what you went through, but yet at the same time he's able to, to do something about it. I mean, that, is fantastic. that sticks that whole, you know, 100% God, 100% man argument. You're like, oh, you know. Um, in theology, very applicable. Lastly, number four, Jesus offered. It says, in being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. Again, being made perfect is not that he was perfect as in like sin, sinful became sinless. It's just that he was proved his obedience. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This makes Jesus the true and better high priest. All the high priests had to offer sacrifices for themselves. Right? We talked about that. But Jesus, as our high priest, didn't have to offer anything for himself because he was already perfect. All the high priests had to offer sacrifices over and over and over again for the people's sins. Why? Because people just kept sinning. <laughs> they had to keep doing it over and over. But Jesus, as our high priest, offered himself once for all. And he'll talk about that later in Hebrews. All the high priests offered the people. All they could offer them was temporary, kind of momentary forgiveness. But Jesus, our high priest, offers us eternal forgiveness and eternal salvation. All the high priests died. Every single one of them. And you know what? And they stayed dead. But Jesus, our high priest, died and rose again and is now at the right hand of God to continue that ministry forever. Every high priest in the history of the world gave in to sin. And he would, they were only able to sympathize, get this, as a fellow quitter. Oh, I know what it's like to quit. I know what it's like to give in to sin. That's all a high priest could ever do. Jesus never gave in to sin. 
Thus, he is able to sympathize with us no matter how hard temptation gets. He knows every degree, every, as hard as it ever gets. He knows what it's like. All the high priests instilled fear and trepidation in approaching God for the people, right? It was just like they were always afraid to approach God. Jesus instilled in his followers, those who believe in him, confidence and joy for people to approach God because of his death on our behalf. Now we can boldly, we saw last week, approach the throne of grace. Remember that high priest garment we talked about earlier? You know that Jesus, as it were, wears those now. He assumed those garments now in heaven. And as he sits on his throne as king and priest today with scepter in his hand, he literally has our names written on his shoulders. They're there. He's carrying. That's why Peter would tell you, what, to cast all your cares on him because he cares for you? Cast them on his shoulders. He's, he's carrying those. He has, he has our names etched over his heart, always resonating with our sufferings and feeling our pains we saw last week. And there he sits with that crown, that, that, that turban on his head that says, Holy to the Lord. And it's a name that every one of us who are followers of Christ, when we die and enter his presence, that he will give. And that will be a new name for you. <laughs> That's crazy, right? Revelation 22, 4. They will see his face. His name will be, be on their foreheads. Isaiah 62, 2, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You'll have a name given to you, holy to the Lord, separated from sin to the Lord, unbound with, with sin before the Lord, completely perfect before the Lord. Can you imagine having that name, that reputation? It's all gone. All that struggle, all that fight has been removed, and you're now set free, ultimately free from this body of death, as Paul called it. So today, my friends, no matter, no matter what is going on, you think, you know, why did the writer of, uh, highlight Jesus as a true and better high priest? Why did he do that? Because these people were suffering, and they needed to know that their God was, as it were, in the trenches with them and had finished all the work of redemption, they could trust him, and they could walk with him, and they could rest in him. And so today, no matter what troubles you, no matter what weighs you down, Jesus is eager, willing, and ready to hear whatever it is that weighs on your heart. He will hear, he will understand, he will empathize, and he has ability to help. So as we go to communion, we're going to take the bread and juice, we're going to remember this high priest of ours who has died, offered himself, and rose again. And when we're done with communion, we're going to sing a song that you may be familiar with. There's a song called Before the Throne of God Above. Maybe for the first time, maybe you've known that song for a while, did you know this is where it came from? You're going to hear lines about how, how our names are written on his hands. Our names are written on his heart. That, that all comes from the, pre, the high priestly garments that Jesus is wearing. He's carrying, literally etched onto his shoulders, on his heart, your name. He is carrying you and your burdens. Your life is hid in Christ. So as we go to communion, we take bread, we take juice. If you're a follower of Christ today, you're welcome to come to that table. We'll take a moment of quiet to lay our burdens down before him, to cast our cares upon him. And uh, there'll be people here to pray for you and give our offerings as response as well. Let me pray. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for your ministry as a high priest. Um, God, it's a, uh, it's a wonderful image that we, we don't take a lot of time to think about. But we thank you that you were there. You know exactly what we're going through. You know the weight and the burdens that we face. 
There's not a single thing in our life from this day forward or even in our past that, God, you have not experienced and know what it's like. God, you are, um, you are a great God. We thank you that you are willing to take on human flesh, live among us, suffer with us, and then die for us to rescue us from our sin. I pray today, God, for those here who do not know you, who do not know, um, God, what it's like to feel the burden and the weight and the guilt of sin removed off of their life. God, would they give their life over to you today? Would they surrender and raise that white flag? And God, lay, lay everything down before you and become a new person today. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.